Well, hello there. This is Stuart Haynes, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast, where we explore the evidence that informs ambulatory care pharmacy practice. One of the biggest challenges in our antimicrobial stewardship efforts is the number of patients who report allergies, particularly to penicillin, but who, in fact, are not allergic to penicillin. But because they report a penicillin allergy, clinicians prescribe alternative antibiotics that may not be as effective, are likely to be more expensive, may have more adverse effects, and invariably contribute to the development of antimicrobial resistance. Thus, determining who truly has a penicillin allergy is critically important, and we've talked about methodically screening for penicillin allergies and offering allergy testing to those at the highest risk in our previous commentaries and podcasts. Similar to our patients alerting us to an allergy that doesn't really exist, so too our electronic health record systems warn us about allergies that might not be a problem but prompt clinicians to prescribe more expensive agents that, as I've said, may not be as effective, may be less safe, and fuel antimicrobial resistance. So I was intrigued when I saw a recent study conducted at Kaiser Permanente in California that reported health outcomes after they removed an allergy alert from their electronic health record system. And joining me today to talk about this study and its implications in practice, are Dr. Nora Sharaya and Dr. Brian Wenger. Uh, Dr. Sharaya is a clinical pharmacy specialist in ambulatory care at the Community Health Network in Indianapolis, Indiana. And Dr. Wenger is a PGY2 pharmacotherapy resident with the Community Health Network and Butler University. Together, they wrote a commentary for iFormerX, and I'm delighted to welcome Nora and Brian as first-time guests and contributors to iFormerX. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting us to join today. Brian and I have had some great conversations since reviewing this article, so we're very excited to be here. I learned a lot in writing this commentary, and this is my very first podcast, so I'm excited to get started. So before we talk about the study you reviewed in your commentary, uh, I'd like to get a better understanding of penicillin allergies. How commonly is it reported, and how common are true allergies? What kinds of reactions do patients typically experience? And if someone is allergic to penicillin, how likely are they to be allergic to other beta-lactams? Penicillin allergies, I think, are one of those things that certainly can cause some eye rolls, so to speak, amongst healthcare providers when they appear in a patient's chart, especially when it says something like reaction unknown, time reported since childhood, and the infection that we're trying to treat really necessitates a penicillin or a beta-lactam. The CDC actually estimates that although roughly 10% of the U.S. population has a reported penicillin allergy in their chart, actually less than 1% of those are truly allergies, meaning IgE-mediated or type 1 allergies, which to me is really astounding and that it's really almost a tenfold difference. It really does make us realize how important the role of a good medical history is when we're assessing a patient. Asking those types of questions such as, when did the allergy start? How long does it last? And what kinds of symptoms does the patient experience as a part of the reaction are critical to determining what antibiotics can be used. So what's commonly reported? I feel like I've seen a wide variety of things reported 
rash, itching, hives, stomach upset, skin crawling, delusions. But how we differentiate some of those patient-reported things from true IgE or true type 1 mediated reactions and it's really characterized by intense hives, angioedema or swelling of the lips, or even wheezing or shortness of breath. Of course, we also see anaphylaxis reported in patients' charts, and when that is there, I'm pretty confident that I can believe it, and so I'm very cautious in terms of recommending we trial, for example, a cephalosporin if there's a history of anaphylaxis to penicillin there. So we know that can be a big gap between what patients report and what actually qualifies as an allergic reaction. So when there is a true allergic reaction to just plain old penicillin, for example, can we use extended spectrum penicillins like amoxicillin or ampicillin, cephalosporins, carbapenems? The answer here is very likely yes, unless of course, as I mentioned, there is an anaphylaxis reaction documented or some other severe, potentially life-threatening reaction that can be confirmed. A sort of classic number going back decades is that 10% of patients with a true penicillin allergy will have that same reaction to cephalosporins. And really since then, we've determined through numerous types of studies in many settings that that number really is just not accurate. And the real likelihood is anywhere between 0.2% and 1%. There are a few cephalosporins, for example, that share chemical side chains or chemical rings with penicillin, which may make it more likely to see that reaction. But even with this, the chances are low. There are some great tools available on the internet and in most institutions' internal databases that can help us assess and determine recommendations when it comes to cross-reactivity. And finally, what is the point of all of this? Why do we care so much about potentially inappropriately documented penicillin allergies? Well, the CDC and the WHO have both described antibiotic resistance as a public health emergency. And this is really one of the primary reasons why we do care so much about getting this allergy thing right, so to speak. Also, the more we use broad-spectrum antibiotics rather than the drug of choice for a specific organism, for example, using vancomycin in an enterococcus infection instead of ampicillin, which is the drug of choice, we risk inadequately treating the patient. So let's talk about the results of the study you reviewed for iFormerX. The, the paper was published back in April 2021 in JAMA Open Network, and the manuscript is entitled Association Between Removal of a Warning Against Cephalosporin Use in Patients with Penicillin Allergy and Antibiotic Prescribing. And we provide a link to the paper on the iFormerX website, but can you give us a brief summary of the study design and its major findings? Absolutely. So Kaiser Permanente, South California, decided to try to remove the electronic medical record warning to avoid prescribing cephalosporins in patients with a documented penicillin allergy. They wanted to see how this change would impact the choice of antibiotic, the incidence of antibiotic allergy, the incidence of cephalosporin-associated anaphylaxis, and the rate of penicillin allergy-associated comorbidities. The way they did this was designing a case control that compared these endpoints to their partner Kaiser Permanente, North California, which was not making this change to their medical record. Over 4 million patients were included in this study. Baseline race and age were different between the sites, reflective of geographical differences, with patients being more likely to be Hispanic or Black in the South California group and older and white in the North California group. 
The intervention site also had slightly less patients with a documented penicillin allergy at 8.9% versus 9.9%. The results of the study ended up showing an increased utilization of cephalosporins from 17.9% pre-intervention to 27% post-intervention, while the comparison site only changed from 15.3% to 16.2%. There was also a statistically significant decrease in the use of many other broad-spectrum antibiotics, including vancomycin and fluoroquinolones, to name a few. There was no statistically significant decrease in the rate of anaphylaxis, allergies to new antibiotic classes, antibiotic treatment failure, all-cause mortality, hospital days, or new infection after the change. So population health studies that use existing medical records like this study are critically important to conduct, but because they are observational studies, they come with some significant limitations. There are certain best practices that investigators should employ to ensure a rigorous design and to mitigate some of the confounders. So what did the investigators in this study do, and did they follow those best practices? How confident are you that these results are valid? The study certainly did have some limitations in just the pure fact that it is observational. One thing that should be noted is that this study did report following the STROBE guidelines, or the Strengthening the Reporting of Observational Studies in Epidemiology. This guideline was created back in 2008, and highlights some key features that a good observational study should, should contain. There is even a website that lists all of these features that you can go through when you're assessing an observational study. Some of these major features listed include explaining background and rationale thoroughly, stating objectives clearly with any hypotheses, describing the setting and the location, giving any matching or eligibility criteria pertinent to the study group or groups, clearly defining both primary and secondary outcomes, explaining outliers and any variables that exist, and summarizing key findings with what the STROBE guidelines refer to as a cautious overall interpretation. And I think that's something that is important to highlight here because in observational studies, we have to take all of the data and the information that comes from them with a bit of a grain of salt. Overall though, I think that this study did pretty much meet most of those criteria that I mentioned in the STROBE guideline. There was certainly a clear purpose and intent. The objectives were well-defined. The study design was straightforward. It was overall a well-designed study and I enjoyed reading and learning about it. I do believe that the results can be considered valid and they can be applied to other settings. So based on the findings in the study, what do you think? Should we be turning off those warnings in our electronic health records? I think some clinicians in health systems are concerned about the legal liability if someone was harmed. So often the warnings and alerts are turned on simply to, well, CYA, cover your assets. Another approach to this problem could be to leave the alert turned on, but to educate providers to inquire more deeply about the nature of the penicillin allergy and to have allergy testing more readily available. Uh, what do you currently do in your practice? And if you were in charge of the world, what would you do? Such good, bold questions. 
So our current site does have the pop-up warning for cross-reactivity, and we do still get questions from community pharmacists when they're filling prescriptions as well. I do think a big part of this is the legal liability, and one of the reasons I was reading this study a little bit cautiously. I think in my ideal world, I would have an automatic review triggered anytime someone stated that they have a penicillin allergy. This is something that could be done immediately when somebody establishes care with a new provider. That way it's automatically triggered to a referral team that will further review that penicillin allergy and help us decide how to use that information. I also wonder with the use of the electronic medical systems, will we be less likely to have the, my mom told me never to take penicillins because of what happened since the information will be more accessible? I believe that implementing the results of this study is not necessarily realistic. And one thought that I had is if a health system were to be interested in implementing a similar protocol, such as removing alerts from penicillin allergies for cephalosporins, I think the key feature there is to make sure that there is robust education prior to the implementation of that process. And by that, I mean, town halls with providers and pharmacists, addressing any concerns that come up, like the legal liability piece of it, and getting everyone's buy-in and making sure that all the providers are comfortable with this process. Well, Brian, Nora, I want to thank you both for critically reviewing this paper and for being guests on the iFormerX podcast today. Our discussion today has prompted me to think more deeply about how our electronic health systems influence human behavior. And while well-intentioned, I think alerts and warnings can have both positive as well as unintentional negative consequences. Thus, we need to rigorously test different strategies to determine what leads to the best outcomes. And I think this study is an excellent example of, of doing just that. Well, tell us what you think. Should we routinely turn off certain alerts and warnings in our electronic health records? And if so, which ones? What alerts are routinely ignored anyway? And what alerts can be safely stopped? Remember, only iFormerX members can leave comments and use the interactive features on the site. And, and you can become a member of iFormerX. It's free, so sign up today. And by the way, if you are a board-certified ambulatory care pharmacist, I hope you'll take a look at the board recertification program offered by the American Pharmacists Association. APHA and iFormerX have partnered together to make this commentary and podcast available for board recertification and continuing education credit. To learn more about the program, just click on the link at the bottom of the written commentary posted on the iFormerX website. And lastly, a big thank you to Jamie Wagner, one of my colleagues here at the University of Mississippi. Uh, sadly, Jamie is not an ambulatory care pharmacist. She's an infectious disease specialist, but Jamie has supported our work in many, many ways over the past two years by reviewing commentaries and writing summaries and news articles with some of our best and brightest students and residents. So, Jamie teaches literature evaluation skills to our students and residents, and she's committed to our mission of critically evaluating the evidence that informs practice. So thank you, Jamie, for being such a great iFormerX member and supporter and for mentoring students and residents. And until next time, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of 
iFormerX, signing off. Mm-hmm.